1: Save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, folks. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. This is just a content warning for listeners that this interview does discuss possibly traumatic subject matter pertaining to rape. A little bit more about our guest, Steve Bergsman, one of the authors of Chapel of Love. The story of New Orleans girl group The Dixie Cops, co authored with Rosa Hawkins and published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2021. In 1963, sisters Barbara Ann and Rosa Hawkins and their cousin Joan Marie Johnson traveled from the segregated South to New York City under the auspices of their manager, former pop singer Joe Jones. With their wonderful harmonies, they were an immediate success. To this day, The Dixie Cups' greatest hit, Chapel of Love, is considered one of the best songs of the past 60 years. Chapel of Love, the story of New Orleans girl group the Dixie Cups, explores the ups and downs of one of the most successful girl groups of the 1960s. Telling their story for the first time in their own words, Chapel of Love reintroduces the Louisiana Music Hall of Famers to a new audience. Our guest, Steve Berksman, is a longtime journalist who has written over a dozen books. His most recent book was a biography of Screamin' Jay Hawkins. So welcome, Steve. How are you doing? Excellent. Pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, looking forward to our chat, and I think our listeners will enjoy as well learning more about this very interesting book. Uh, So before we get into that part of the conversation, though, can you tell our listeners more about you and where you're coming from with this project? And can you tell us more about the Dixie Cups?
1: Sure. So uh, as far as I'm concerned about me, uh, a subject that I know something about, so for the past uh, 30 years or so, I was mostly a business and financial writer and, uh, and, travel, and travel writer. So I did that for, I was a freelance journalist, traveled the world. Uh, I had a specialty in real estate. So I interviewed all the, you know, I knew all the famous real estate people from Donald Trump to uh, Steve Ross, who develops in Manhattan. And uh, then somewhere along the line, I was always an amateur musicologist, and I just decided to write something different. So after, uh, I'm guess- I am don't remember now, about five books on real estate, uh, one of which was actually a bestseller, um, I decided to write about uh, mm-hmm. the early days of pop music going back to the 1950s. And I've done. Uh, I, I did a, a three-book set called well, the R&B set, and um, and that was historical nonfiction. And then I moved over to uh, nonfiction. Uh, so I, let me go back. That was historical fiction. And then I moved back to nonfiction, and uh, I, I just published a couple of books. One was on Screaming Jay Hawkins, uh, the fellow who write who wrote. I Put a Spell on You, uh, a song that seems to live forever, and then I moved over to the Dixie Cups. Now, the story of the Dixie Cups, uh, uh, so let me tell you how I got to writing about the Dixie Cups. I was writing a book with Beverly Lee of the Shirelles. Now, up until the Supremes in the mid-60s, the Shirelles were the premier girl group uh, of 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 their time they had their first hit record in 58 and then in the early 60s they had wonderful songs like will you still love me tomorrow and soldier boy number one songs dedicated to the one i love so they were the premier girl group and there's two of them still alive there were four of them so uh i wrote um uh, I think we were, we called it "Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow"? The story of the Shirelles by Beverly Lee and Steve Bergsman, and and that book was finished and put out to market, and then Beverly Lee sort of got cold feet, and uh, and turned down every offer, and the and the book so the book ended up never to uh, never to seeing the light of day, though it's still there and it's finished. And, and uh, at some point, she may say, oh, well, let's get this thing published. And I keep waiting for that day. But anyway, in the course of that, uh, I decided to interview uh, about a handful of people who were friendly with her and knew her. And, uh, and two of those people were Rosa Hawkins and Barbara Hawkins of the Dixie Cups. And uh, they were, were, were glad to speak because... By the time the Dixie Cups came along, the Shirelles were, were old professionals from the road. And in those days, uh, you did your record, and then you went on the road as part of a group tour because there were all, all the, you know, today you, you'll see some famous act, and they're the headliners, and there may be one opening act, but it's generally that. But back in... Starting in the 40s, 50s, uh, the, the tours uh, were like 12 or 15 groups. And you'd sing uh, one or two songs off the stage. Next famous person came in, sang one or two songs off the stage. And they toured uh, by bus around the country. And uh, by the time the Dixie Cups uh, joined these tours... The the, uh, the had been at it for about four years already, so they knew the ropes, and they, and they uh, instructed the Dixie Cups on how, what to wear, what foods to bring, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes these toured these, uh, especially the Dick Clark tours. They toured the South, and these were uh, uh, white and black acts on the bus. But in the South, everything was segregated at the time, so it was it was uh, often a difficult circumstance. So um, that's how I got uh, involved with the Dixie Cups, because I interviewed them for the Beverly Lee Shirelles book. And then afterwards, Rosa Hawkins came to me, she called me up and said, no, I'd like to do a book. Now, I knew the Dixie Cups and I knew Chapel of Love and some of their other hits, and, but I wasn't too sure that after the trouble I had with Beverly Lee and the Shirelles, I wasn't too sure I wanted to go into another girl group book. And I said, okay, you got these hits, but what's, you know, what's your story? Why would, why would this be interesting? And then Rosa proceeded to tell me this uh, very long story uh, about how the Dixie Cups were abused. And in in Rosa's case, case she was, uh, not only were the Dixie Cups managerially abused and financially abused, but in Rose's case, she was physically abused, so that 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 that's sort of I thought that well that was pretty interesting and maybe it warranted a book. So I said, okay, we'll give it a shot. Um, I'll, we'll, we'll do a chapter, and I'll put together a proposal, and we'll see if anybody is interested in this book, and the University of Mississippi Press which excels in uh, books about music history, that's uh, pretty much their forte. Um, they, they wanted the book, and um, so we got it underway. So this is a story about the Dixie Cups, who had a very short life in pop history. Their songs, oddly enough, live forever, but as a recording act, uh, they only had a short life. They toured forever as well. But, uh, it's, it's, a, but it's a long story of uh, what I call abuse and obsession. Because even years after, they were able to separate from their manager, a man named Joe Jones, who uh, back in 1960 had a big hit called You Talk Too Much. It was a number two record in the country. You could never find a follow up. And, entered the, and continued on in the recording industry doing other things. And he discovered the Dixie Cups and managed them and uh, uh, and siphoned away all their money, among other things. And uh, even after the, the Dixie Cups were finally able to separate from him, he spent decades tormenting them and, and trying to sue them and trying to, Uh, claim all their records, even the the name of the group was his. And that went on for a very, very long time. So that's sort of the overview of the Dixie Cups and me.
0: Yeah, thank you for laying that out uh, for our listeners. I think that is like you said, a very great overview of everything. And I wanted to back up sort of to what you were just talking about towards the end there, which is this relationship between Joe Jones and the Dixie cups and his abuse of different forms. Uh, To your knowledge, had this really been discussed much before this book, you know, and what was it like for you to, you know, talk with Rosa and work through this with Rosa and looking back at those experiences?
1: So Rosa Carried this story her whole life, because all the Dixie Cups uh, were financially abused and managerially abused, but Rosa was physically abused as well. In fact, she was raped. So we'll go out and say that, and she never talked about it. But you know they're uh, they're getting on in years, and and I think Rosa that uh, carried the story long enough. And she felt it was something she wanted to finally put out there. So, uh, and that's, I think that's why she came to me to write this book. So um, she wanted to tell this uh, very long, long and uh, and very tough story for her. So I always thought she was very brave in, in, in finally coming around to tell this story. So uh, I'll just give you a brief history, how, how, the, how this all started. So New Orleans was a very potent music town forever. And and everybody thinks of it as sort of a a jazz town because pretty much jazz was created there in the early 20th century. But uh, it was also a a premier uh, town for the creation of rock and roll. Everybody think, oh, rock and roll New York, Uh, places in the Northeast, but one of the nodes for the creation of rock and roll was New Orleans. And that was because one of the earliest recording studios in the South was in New Orleans. And it was uh, recorded, uh, it was created around 1948. So a lot of the itinerant uh, musicians, blues musicians, R&B singers, who toured the south and and the midwest uh, they uh they came down to new orleans to record plus there was an infrastructure there there was a lot of talent there uh new orleans had some of the best clubs uh for r&b musicians in the country so uh it was a, it was a, a place where where music got started and even into the end of the 50s 60s there were still a lot of uh, uh, musicians that recorded or came to New Orleans to record there. One of them was Joe Jones, who was a new New Orleans musician. And uh, he began uh, a lot of things. Joe Jones said uh, never really made sense. Uh, he, he claimed he was on the, uh, the recording session uh, for the seminal uh pre-rock and roll, proto-rock and roll song, Good Rockin' Tonight, but according to my research, he was still in the Navy, so that didn't happen. But he did a tour with a a very good uh, New Orleans uh, uh, early rock and rollers, Shirley and Lee. And um, their famous song from the mid-50s was uh, Let the Good Times Roll. But they had a lot lot of songs before that. A very very good group, underappreciated. So and then he started recording and he and he had the song um You Talk You Talk Too Much, a very uh a novelty song, but it was successful. And uh never able to find a a follow-up and so he just hung around uh in New Orleans and he was looking for talent to sort of promote and manage. And he was at a, a talent contest uh uh new orleans uh famous for their talent contest for, for for youngsters and he came across a group called the meltones and the meltones was uh, uh mostly put together with barbara hawkins and uh her friend uh, another female and two males and then one of the males uh uh, singers couldn't make it. His mother got sick, and and he had to drop out. And they needed a fourth because a lot of doo with you know, was either four or five people. So they wanted a fourth, and they needed a singer to take the place of the male, and they couldn't find one. And Barbara suggested her sister Rosa, and because uh, Rosa had a deeper voice, so that's how that was the formation of the Meltones. They sang at the talent contest and uh, Joe Jones discovered them. Now, I got to tell you that uh, Rosa was still in high school or just graduating high school. She was a very, uh, she was a teenager and the other two uh, uh, were teenagers. Also, Barbara was the oldest. She was about 19 at this point, but Rosa was about 16. So when all of this Began to happen, and uh, Joe Jones calls uh, up uh, another somebody he knew that he toured with in the early '50s. Uh, um, oh, I can't think of his name now. Love is strange. The the, the duo that's saying love is strange, and uh, the female uh, part of that duo, she uh, was in New York. And she was also uh, looking around to do other things, and she would become a very famous uh, music executive and publisher with her own company called All Platinum, which uh, published and created the first popular rap record. So, but she got her start in the fifties uh, singing "Love Is Strange," oh, Mick, Mickey and Sylvia, and her when when she. Founded uh, All Platinum. Uh, a decade later, she was Sylvia Robinson. So anyway, he calls Mickey. Uh, he calls Sylvia. Says, "I found I found this group, the Meltones. I, I think they're talented. I want to bring them to New York and and see if we can get a uh, recording contract." And uh, he, uh, he he gets permission from their mother, and he also gets uh, since he's an adult and they're uh, underage. He has uh, parental control over them as well. Now, the girls, they're, they're teenagers. And here's where everything uh, goes wrong for the girls, and they didn't know it, is that when you're the talent, you ha- you, ma- you hire your management. So you're in control. You're the talent. But they were teenagers. They didn't know anything. And they always assume that their manager, Joe Jones, was in control of them. So whatever Joe Jones said or did, plus he was the only adult in this whole thing, they, they, they subscribed to whatever he was proclaiming. So um, they go to New York and uh, he takes them and you literally hit the pavement. You walk around, you visit. Uh, uh, there, there are hundreds of, of songwriters in New York and little companies that were, uh, that were out there and uh, many of them were located in two buildings on Broadway. The most famous is the Brill Building. Uh, and the Brill Building uh, was really uh, 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 not a high rise, a mid rise. And uh, it was located just off Broadway. It was on Broadway, I'm sorry. It was right on Broadway. And uh, it was a warren of little offices and songwriters, uh, all the famous songwriters out of the 60s, the Carol Kings, the Ellie Greenwiches, they all work there, and there were little publishing companies. And, and so he eventually makes his, Joe Jones eventually brings him to uh, the Brill building, and they're visiting this office, and this office, and this office. And he, he takes him in to see uh, Ellie Greenwich. And uh, a lot of the female songwriters were married to their songwriting partners, such as Carol King. She, she was married to her personal running partner. And so was Ellie Greenwich. And um, they said, okay, let's hear what you got. And they had this song that they sung for everybody, which was written by a friend down in New Orleans. And they sounded interesting. And they sounded interesting because um, most the girl group sound, uh, which evolved out of the doo-wop sound, consisted uh, of a forward, a lead singer, and generally three backup singers who would do the fill. So that's the way doo was. And when the girl groups got started, such as the Shirelles, and, uh, and almost every girl group after that was a lead singer and, and the follow-up, Martha and the Vandellas, or uh, the Supremes, even the Supremes with Diana Ross did, did that. But the Dixie Cups were different. They had a group sound. They had three-part harmony, which was what they sang. Their mother was a singer, and they sang with their mother in church, and they all sang in this harmony. So uh, what impressed Ellie uh, was the fact that these girls had this three-part harmony, which was a different sound. And... All the writers had, had, had uh, all the songwriters had uh, uh, a lot of stuff, what they called in the can. They, you know, they'd, they'd write a song, uh, somebody would sing it, maybe they'd get it to a girl group and uh, it would be sung, maybe it wasn't hit, and but nothing ever got wasted. So, uh, in fact, the song, uh, Chapel of Love, was tried by Phil Spector. Phil Spector was the third writing, par- writing partner of this song. So uh, he had his own groups he liked to, uh, girl groups that he liked to deal with, and he, he tried a few times to have them sing Chapel of Love and nothing ever came of it. So en- enter the Dixie Cups, and uh, Ellie and her husband, they take down, uh, I'm sorry, just the name escapes him at the moment, but he was a uh, principal part of the writing group. They take the song down and they play it for the Dixie Cups. And they say, could you do something with this Chapel of Love song? And the Dixie Cups didn't really quite like it, but they said, uh, sure, we'll do something with it. So they leave, the, leave left the song with her, with the Dixie Cups, went away, came back 20 minutes later. The Dixie Cups have rearranged it now in three-part harmony. They sing it. Songwriters go, oh, wow, this is great. And we're going to record you. So they sign the contract and uh, onward and upward for the Dixie Cups. Now, a lot of, uh, uh, as you know, a lot of acts, they, they come, they, they cut an. Nowadays, they cut an album or a few songs. But back in the day, you, you cut a record, a 45, A-side, B-side, Uh side and you put it out there and hopefully got discovered. And, um, so, uh, sometimes you, you may cut 12 records or 14 records and you, you wouldn't make it. Or maybe on your 15th record, you finally had a hit, but the Dixie cups on their very first try chapel of love was their very first recording. And it was a monster. It was a number one hit. So, uh, they got very lucky. And then uh, then came the tours and the recording and everything else. And um, so you wonder, okay, how did they get mismanaged there? I mean, Joe Jones discovered them, brought them to New York. They recorded a record. Uh, so what happened after that? Well, a couple of things. So uh, Joe Jones, his only source of income was the Dixie Cups. So whatever the Dixie, the Dixie Cups made money, if they did, uh, you know, they got money for the recording, if they went on tour and did shows, um, he made money. So he put the Dixie Cups in an apartment, uh, three in one uh, apartment, and he took an apart- uh, apartment a couple of floors up in the same building. All this money is coming out of the Dixie Cups. His life, he had. He bought a car so he could take them around. That money's coming out of the Dixie Cups. In fact, the Dixie Cups never ever had any money. They just got an allowance from their manager, Joe Jones. They 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 were teenagers. They completely put their life in Joe Jones' hands. So you know, any money that came into the Dixie Cups came into Joe Jones first, and he took off out all his expenses. And and as things got bigger for the for the Dixie Cups, and there was royalties and all that. Joe Jones would go down to the, the, the music publisher, the, uh, the company that that uh, produced the record and say uh, the Dixie Cups need an advance. They want to send some money home to their, mo- to, to their mother. And, they, and uh, the company would give Joe Jones an advance on future royalties. But Joe Jones, that money never went to the Dixie Cups. That, that money always went to Joe Jones. So uh, he was actually taking money from the Dixie Cups the whole time, and they never knew it. When at, at some point in the future, when they went to get their royalties for for Chapel of Love, which probably sold, sold two million records, uh, their their take was seven hundred dollars a piece. And they go, you know, they thought they were going to get thousands and thousands, then then they learned that. Joe Jones would, would be going and saying, hey, you know, we need an advance on future royalties. I need an advance on future royalties. So he's, he was, in fact, taking all their money, plus supporting Joe Jones's lifestyle. Uh, so, so that's that's how it all started for them. Plus, they uh, they were totally controlled by Joe Jones, even though they were actually in control because they were the talent, but they didn't know it. They thought the manager controlled them. And if they did something he didn't like, um, he would always threaten to fire them, but he couldn't fire them. But they didn't know that. They always thought Joe Jones could fire one of them, et cetera, et cetera. And so there there are a number of of stories about uh, Joe Jones uh, abusing his management of the... Dixie cups. And, um, so I just want to tell you two, cause there's many. So the Dixie cups career as a recording act only lasted about a year. And that was because, uh, uh, while he was in New Orleans, the Dixie cups were in a recording studio one day. Uh, and it was downtime and, and they were bored. And just to pass the time, they started singing an old New Orleans chant uh, that their mother had taught them. And that chant is now called Ico, Ico. So they're sitting in the studio and and they're banging on Pepsi bottles and whatever is there and the three of them and they're having a good time. And then they didn't know that uh, the record producer was listening and he was recording it. He liked it so much he recorded the girls having a good time, and that record, uh, and they recorded it. And what you hear in in the in the hit record "Iko Iko" is actually the girls just playing around in the recording studio. They added just one instrument after that and nothing else, and it became uh, also a big hit. And the uh, record company. Quickly, because they didn't trust Joe Jones. The record company didn't even trust Joe Jones. Uh, they quickly uh, um, got the rights to made the record. Uh, the rights to the uh, the creation of the record. Uh, they put it in the Dixie Cups name. So the three girls, uh, Rosa, Barbara, and um, and the cousin, uh, all three of them got the rights to the song, "Iko Iko." Joe Jones comes back. He says, no, I, I created that song. I, I, it was my song. I want the rights to that. Because uh, he wanted the royalty rights, the future royalty rights. And then the record company said no. He got into a fight with them. And he took the Dixie Cups to another publisher. Well, he, he couldn't do that because they were under contract. So they, they went to uh, another um, publisher and... Um, and then, it, then it became a legal fight, and it uh, turns out that Dixie Cups couldn't rec- record anymore for the new company. They couldn't record anymore for the old company, and they were no longer a recording act. And then became a touring act at, at that point. So, uh, but then I'm going to tell you the the, the worst story. So uh, they were they were very popular. The, the Dixie Cups uh, for a long time. And a lot of their, uh, the hits they recorded on Redbird records and, and, and these companies strung out their hits over time. So even though they weren't recording, you know, some of the records kept coming out and they were very popular and they toured England twice. And on, uh, this one particular trip to England, uh, Joe Jones is out, uh, He's buying up, he's buying up the town. He's buying everything he wants to take back to, to, uh, um, to, to, to New York. And, um, so the, uh, meanwhile, the the Dixie Cups, they get to hang around, hang out, uh, at night with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and they're just having a good time in London and finally it's all over and they're in the airport, uh, with Joe Jones expecting to go home when the police come and arrest Joe Jones. It turns out that Joe Jones uh, the, was uh, buying up the town, buying thousands of dollars' worth of goods in London, writing checks, and he, and he had no money in his checking account. So he's kiting these checks, hoping that he can get out of England fast enough That when people realized there was no money behind these checks, he would already be in New York and he wouldn't get caught because nobody's going to bring him back to that. So he was kiting checks, but the the British merchants were quicker than he realized and um, he's arrested. Now, the 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 Dixie Cups, they, they they're they're still essentially wards of in their minds, they're wards of Joe Jones. And they're at the airport and they don't know what to do. So they think, who do we know here? Well, the year before they had toured with The Animals, a group called The Animals, a very popular British group. Their biggest hit being the House of the Rising Sun, uh, a number one hit in the US. And they made, they were friendly with The, the Animals and um, they said, oh, we know these guys, let's call them. Maybe they could ha- help us. And the lead singer of the group was uh, a fellow by the name of Eric Burden, and um, they eventually get in touch with Eric Burden. He says, "Don't worry about it. Uh, uh, go to my, go to this address. Take a taxi to this address. It's my my apartment. Uh, there's a key there. Uh, you guys can stay there. I will get my lawyer to get Joe Jones out of jail." So. Uh, Eric Byrd does this amazing uh, favor for them and they're staying in his apartment. The lawyer, I guess, barrister, is that what <laughs> I don't think they call them uh, lawyers in, in London. Maybe it was his barrister. Anyway, uh, he does his job and he gets Joe Jones out of jail and Joe Jones goes to Eric's apartment, uh, because that's where the Dixie Cups are staying, and he's going to stay there the next night. And hopefully, the uh, in, a, in a day or two they can get out of Britain. So he's out of jail. He's all uh, puffed up with himself. Oh, you know, I did jail. I'm out. Uh, I can do what I want. And he's he's like the king of the roost. And and the uh, and the Dixie Cups, they're serving him dinner. They're you know giving giving him a drink, whatever you want. They're like three servants to him. And uh, there's only one bed. The three girls are sharing uh, one huge bed and uh, Joe Jones is supposed to sleep out on the couch. But he gets restless and goes into the girl's room and he starts climbs into the bed next to Rosa Hawkins. And he starts handling her and she pushes him away. But he's back. And I, I think it's, I'm not sure what, what, what's called it statutory rape or rape, but anyway, uh, he has his way with Rosa Hawkins and, and the thing about Rosa Hawkins and probably the reason she wrote this book is that she, she st- entered this life right out of high school. She never really had a boyfriend. Uh, she never experienced, you know, Boyfriend life, or you know, passionately kissed a boy in high school. She just went from high school life to becoming a Dixie cup and a star. And she never, even even those years, she never really had a boyfriend. So she was just a girl who was a a, a singer, and Joe Jones comes and has his way with her. So. And and, and and they're very religious, the girl. So, she, you know, this was a, a, a terrible thing. And as Rosa, uh, as she says in the book, and this is the story she said, that the next night she said she'd sleep on the couch because she'd want to be harassed by Joe. And Joe joined the other two sleeping in the big bed. But she said she got a kitchen knife and sat up all night with a kitchen knife just in case. Joe Jones would come back to her again. So, uh, but anyway, they got out of, uh, they get out of England and the Dixie Cups say, oh, oh they're back in New York and they say to Joe's, oh, okay, we need to pay back uh, Eric Burns lawyer. And, and Joe Jones says, no, I'm not paying him back. I'm here in the U.S., I'm not paying him back. Uh, forget that. And he never, never even thanks, Eric Burden for the help he got and the Dixie Cups got and never paid Eric back for the time that, uh, his lawyer helped him get out of England. So, uh, and I, and I, I, and by this time the, uh, the, the girls are so cowed, uh, that, uh, Joe Jones has a wife and family in New Orleans and a girlfriend that lives with him in New York. But he now he would come down. He had a key to the girl's apartment, Dixie Cup's apartment. And he would come down. And uh, uh, two of the girls slept in a bedroom, was one bedroom. And Rosa slept on a pullout couch in the living room. And then. Uh, he would come down every so often and have his way with Rosa whenever he wanted. Uh, And, um, and that's, that's the terrible story of uh, the beginning. That was, and that, that was just the time that they were together because they eventually uh, uh, realized that they were in charge of Joe Jones and, and they had to get rid of him. First, Joan Marie Johnson quit because she couldn't take him anymore. And she left and um, the Dixie Cubs and went back to a normal life in New Orleans. And, um, and then Barbara and Rosa uh, plowed on with the other singers. And, um, and there the, are the many more stories and many more lawsuits because uh, Joe Jones uh, was so obsessed with them, he could not let them go. And he would try to uh, strangle their act over the next decades. Uh, And there's many, many stories of uh, his cruelty to the Dixie Cups over over the years. So any questions after all that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about how really the those stories that you that Rosa and you helped her do in this book and the retelling of this dynamic between Joe Jones and the group and you know there's all this trauma that clearly they experienced to an extent with all that obviously um, it seems like the timing of this book is really significant too right like thinking about like the Me Too movement that's happened over the last few years. Um, can you talk maybe a little bit about that in terms of, you know, how readers might kind of situate this book within this recent movement and also again this happened, you know, kind of these two historical moments here, right? Between what clearly happened to the Dixie Cups and then these things that have happened with like different artists, especially women in the last few years.
1: So, I, I in a sense the the story of the Dixie Cups is Unusual, but not out of the ordinary, because a lot of the uh, the girl groups they, they were all very young when they started out, and uh, and they were all and a lot of them were black, and black uh, performers were um, <laughs> abused in many different ways. Uh, Uh, over the years and the stories are legendary from Billie Holiday um, uh, uh, going forward. So this even happened in in the 60s and I think you probably find there are are some stories even now of uh, female acts where they're abused by their management, maybe not physically like Rosa was, but certain managerially and probably to some extent financially and i you know look at britney spears i mean i mean that's a little different story but has she been in control of her whole life all these years no so uh so it's it's hard for females it was always hard for female singers and um and and, and, and more power to those who realize that they were the power in any relationship. And, um, and it's time they realized it. So, you, so uh, you, you said of the Me Too movement, but there's like a sector of the Me Too movement for, for entertainers. So you gotta, you gotta give some uh, uh, credence and snaps to somebody like Taylor Swift. Who sort of took back her professional life, uh, and the other singers that have uh, that have done so, but it's a long history of, of this in, in, in the industry, and we're just looking at the recording industry, but uh, it was it's probably no different in the say the movie industry as well, the old casting quote unquote casting couch. That
0: kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, that helps a lot with kind of, again, like I said, contextualizing this book sort of in this moment that it's come out too. Uh, and going back to sort of, again, you're, this book is a, giving Rosa that voice, right, uh, to express these things. And I wanted to hear a little bit more too about some of the behind the scenes aspects of this, right? So with you and Rosa, what was sort of this process like of working together on putting this book out? Like what was sort of the process, like with the interviews, you know, what was sort of this dialogue like with you two?
1: So, um, the way I, the way I, I do it, uh, when I work with, uh, somebody that, that, uh, is going to do a book and, uh, and in this case, uh, I have to take a step back. I have to make this roses book. So it's always uh, uh, the singer uh, with, uh, with say Steve Bergman. And that's the way I did it with Beverly Lee. And I actually uh, did it with another uh, singer as well. And the way I do it, I try to make it as easy as possible for them. They, they really never have to write a word. All they have to do is talk to me. So uh, first of all, they have to trust me to talk to me. So um, uh, thankfully they do. My, my wife always uh, jokes that I'm the girl group whisperer because uh, I, 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 they're my friends forever. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully I say. Uh, so they, they trust me enough to talk to me. And I realize they have a story to tell, and uh, uh, but I don't want them to rush it. So I I I try to limit all the interviews, and I'll use uh, uh, this book as my case my case study. So I I I limit all my interviews to just one hour. I only do one hour interviews. Because uh, 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 sometimes uh, my, my questions are very in depth, and, and I, because I, I need to get them thinking in depth, they'll all, all, even you and I. If we were doing a book, uh, we sort of have these highlights that they're stories that we tell over and over again, uh, and uh, they're, they're uh, it's, it's like it's uh, like glass. We we just tell this one this story, um, and there's a punchline. It's over. but there's a lot of depth to, to that story that we don't tell. That's not our that's not that's not our highlight that we tell. So uh, I need to get uh, very deep into uh, what's behind the story. So uh, I only do uh, one hour. If they want to do two hour uh, another interview in the week, uh, that's fine. But I, I will only limit uh, uh, the interview to a second hour. A lot of them just like to do one interview a week. Fine, uh, there's no rush to this. I just uh, it's it's time to get the story out. Uh, and once we do a couple of uh, these one-hour interviews, um, Rosa and other singers that I've interviewed, they they, they understand the process. Uh, and they get uh, eventually they get more talkative because they know that I'm trying to get uh, the story behind that little highlight film that they're they're showing, uh, and and that's that's my process. So uh, there's actually two steps: a they have to accept you as a writer, uh, and then once they do that, then they have to accept you as the interviewer. And and if you get that, then you have magic. And, and in the case of the Dixie Cups, we got that magic because Rosa had a story to tell, right? And 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 she really wanted to tell it. She didn't know how to tell it, but we were able to get the whole story out.
0: Yeah. And was there anything sort of in that process and in, you know, the various things that you all discussed that maybe surprised you? Um, what did you what did you kind of learn? In doing that process
1: well uh, uh I, I learned a lot about the dixie cups and i learned a lot about uh I, I was always aware of all the uh mismanagement and abuse and uh but i i never really heard it firsthand and how difficult this all was now when i let me go back when when i did the book with beverly lee of the shirelles she too had a rape story and she couldn't tell me the story. So uh, we continued on. Uh, I, I let it go. And then she. we're getting towards the end of, of all the interviews and the book. And it took her really to almost to the last interview to tell me the story. And um, so she finally got it out. Now, you might ask you know why isn't this book why isn't this book in print uh i, you know, I don't know I, I, maybe she still has some ambiguity about having this story out there because uh it it really took a lot for her to tell me that story and it's in the book but maybe she doesn't want to see it or doesn't want anybody else to see it
0: Right. It's one of those types of experiences that, you know, it's a lot to grapple with. Like you're saying as to whether something like that, you know, even though we're talking about in the case of this book, something like that being open, it's, you know, a different case for everyone for sure.
1: Yeah. So these Um, incidents, you know, happened 50 years ago. And, uh, and I, I sort of feel bad because, you know, they've been carrying this within them for so long and, uh, uh, probably uh tormenting them to some extent you know the, that that incident has tormented them and uh and thankfully in Rose's case she was able to I think it helped her to tell this story and get it out there she really wanted to get it out there um I don't think she has a one boy and I'm not sure her her son knew it but she before she did the book she had a discussion with her son and said there's some things i have to say that what, what might make you uncomfortable so he said you know go ahead and do it so i think uh she got sort of an imprimatur from uh, from her son to go ahead and write this book and and that helped her also
0: got it well thank you steve for you know tel- helping us understand this book and this very important again these important stories that you have helped uh, the Dixie Cups tell as we start finishing up. uh, I want to ask you, was there anything else about the book that we haven't already touched on that you think our listeners should understand?
1: Uh, Well, I think a lot of people would see this book and say, Oh, Dixie Cups. uh, It's a girl book. Do we need another uh, um, memoir or biography About something you know, a group from so many years ago, but as you so rightly pointed out, their story fits into that whole uh, Me Too movement nexus. So this is actually a story that's important now, even though her story was from 50 years ago. It fits right into what's going, what's happening now. And and I think people should look at the book because, as you said, some things never change.
0: Yeah, very good point. And thank you so much for talking with us today on the New Books Network. Um, And I'll go to what's my usual closing question. What else are you working on right now?
1: Oh, I'm so busy. Um, I have a book coming out next year, Texas A&M Press. On three and pioneers who uh, died young uh, under controversial circumstances, so that's uh, coming out. And then uh, I did a—I'm uh, really proud of this. Uh, it's a two-book set on the female singers of the 1950s, and it's a two-book set because the first book is on the white singers. And the second book was on the black singers. And and, and it's in two, book, two two different books because they have different arcs. The white singers had one arc that was very, very different from the black singers of the time. And uh, and I, I think the University of Mississippi Press is going to take those too.
0: Cool. Well, I'll look forward to checking those out. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and listeners, just to remind you, you just heard an interview with Steve Bergsman, one of the authors of Chapel of Love, the story of New Orleans girl group, the Dixie Cups, co-author with Rosa Hawkins, and published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2021. This is your host, Emily Allen, and I will see you in- next time here on the New Books Network.